Well, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12 this morning. Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to be. I want to talk about Jesus today. So much bad news swirling on around us. Uh, I want to make sure we get some good news this morning. Hey, here's some good news. I thought about this today, and it just kind of hit me. I hadn't thought about it. Um, A year ago this weekend was our first Sunday here at the Living Hope Columbus building, uh, which is pretty exciting. If you think back on all the memories, if you're on Facebook, uh, look through your memories, and I, I put some things up. You can see those pictures. This was concrete floor with insulation laying all over the place, and it was, it was ugly. And uh, by by God's grace, you know He has invited us into an incredible story. And uh, everything since then, the last 12 months, is literally a miracle. And uh, I hope that you realize that, and I hope that you appreciate that, and and that we just give God the glory for what He's done. I am just overwhelmed, thinking back on all Jesus has allowed us to be a part of, and just. We have stories every week, and uh, yeah, I need to talk about Jesus more in the Bible. So Genesis 12 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn there, and uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 4 today. So I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word in our series, Twas the Night Before Christmas. And God's Word says this, starting in Genesis 12, 1, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Verse four. So Abram went out as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word for this time that we have to gather as the local church here and in person, those joining us via the internet today. Jesus, I pray now as we read through these verses in Genesis 12, God, as we unpack these and we learn from you this morning, that God, you'd teach us, that you'd give us soft hearts to hear from you, ears to be able to hear a word from you this morning, hands and feet to live this out, God, as we pursue Jesus the rest of our week. Father, thanks again for the privilege we have to gather as the local church. May we never take it for granted. May we always make it a priority. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as we continue our series, what we're calling Twas the Night Before Christmas, side little note, um, because we branded it that this way, the series this way, we actually got swept up this week in the YouTube algorithm because people were looking for that movie and they stumbled upon our service this past week. And so we typically on our videos on uh, uh, YouTube get about like 150, 200 views. We got 1,000 this past week because we tricked the whole world. And so that's all Jesus. But uh, let's fast forward a few chapters here to Genesis chapter 12. And really the thrust of this series has us been looking forward to Christmas Day with anticipation. And looking at these various stories and prophecies and promises that God made in the scriptures where we look forward to a Christmas Day that is coming. We saw last week in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve had sinned and the serpent had tricked them, Satan had tricked them, and so God brought a curse down upon mankind. And we saw within that curse the, the solution to the problem of sin that was a Savior named Jesus. And we said in Genesis 3.15 that through that prophetic promise that God had delivered that the Savior would ultimately crush the head of the serpent, which was a foreshadowing of the coming resurrection of Jesus that would occur thousands of years later. And now in Genesis chapter 12, we see another, quote, glimmer of hope that Christmas Day is still on the way because from Genesis 3 to Genesis 12, sin is still wreaking havoc on the earth. 
But if we were willing to pay attention to the promises and prophecies that God gives, we see that a Savior is on the way. Here's a little side note for us today. When God makes a promise, he always comes through on his promise. God has never broken a promise. He will never break a promise ever. And that's what we see here in Genesis chapter 12. So let me set the backdrop on where we've been from Genesis 3 up to Genesis chapter 12. After Genesis 3 happened, you see several generations of men and women who were born from the line and lineage of Adam and Eve. Yet the Bible says that because of mankind's now sinfulness, we had invited sin into the world, that wickedness was running rampant on the earth. And mankind, the Bible says, was exercising evil all the time. To the point, Genesis chapter 6, verse 6 says that God was deeply grieved that he had even created man because their sin was so widespread. So the Bible says that God then decides to press the reset button on mankind. Here's a little side note for us to remember. God can never overlook sin. Sometimes we want him to just do that. We want God just to turn a blind eye to sin. God will never do that. God will always justly and sovereignly deal with the sin of his people. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 6. So in order to preserve this human life that God had made, he takes a man named Noah, his wife, and Noah's children and their wives and puts them on this large boat known as an ark. I'm sure you've heard that story before. God then releases a global flood across the entire earth. Yes, we believe in a literal global flood at this church in case there was any, um, you weren't sure about that. Then what happens is we see once the floodwaters recede, that in Genesis chapter 9, God makes a covenant with Noah that he was never going to flood the earth again. The covenant sign of that was the rainbow. I'm sure, again, you're familiar with some of this stuff. So then you turn to Genesis chapter 10, and we see a really interesting story take place. We see a gathering of a bunch of people and a bunch of nations at a place called Babel. And this group of people we see in Genesis 11 now begin to build this large tower. They had a goal. They were going to build a great name for themselves. They wanted to undermine the glory of God and build a great name for themselves to kind of usurp God's authority. They wanted to steal God's glory. So they were going to do that by building this large tower that the Bible says they wanted to touch the heavens. They wanted a tower so big that its peak would find itself in the clouds. Again, this story in Genesis 11 is very reminiscent of Genesis chapter 3, where we're just trying to steal God's glory for our own benefit. It's the same playbook every single time. So God sovereignly in Genesis 11 confuses the language of all of these people, disperses them all over the earth. Several more generations pass, and now we're introduced to Abram. You might be more familiar with his name after God changes it later in Genesis, the word Abraham. That means the father of many. You're going to see that promise here in just a moment. And in Genesis 12, we're now entering into a section of redemptive history known as the age of the patriarchs. You might have heard that phrase before. Patriarch means the the father or the founders of a group of people. Some of you, uh, maybe you're considered the patriarch of your family if you're older because you're the oldest generation that's still living. Maybe you have grandparents that are referred to as the patriarch and the matriarch of your family. Abraham is the patriarch of the nation of Israel. Because we see here in Genesis chapter 12 that God is forming this nation of Israel through Abraham. What does he do? He has a son named Isaac who has a son named Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Jacob has 12 sons that are known as the 12 tribes of Israel. This is just a lot of history for you to make sure we're on the same page. But who was Abram? That's an important question for us this morning to understand this passage. 
Basically, all we know up to this point in Genesis 12 is that he's from the line of Shem, which was one of the three sons of Noah back in, in earlier in Genesis, Noah in the ark. We know that he has a father named Terah who was from a place called Ur. Imagine naming your city that. What are you going to name it? Ur. <laughs> I don't know. So that's funny. Outside of that, we don't know much about Abram. We don't know anything about him. We know that if he settled in Haran, which we are going to see here in just a moment, Haran during this time was known as a very pagan, polytheistic epicenter of the earth. We know that Haran was a place where the moon god was worshipped very widely. So it's very probable and actually very likely that Abraham comes from a very polytheistic background, meaning he worshipped many false gods. Little side note, Joshua chapter 24, when Joshua is recounting the words that that God had, had said to the nation of Israel, Joshua mentions Abram, and he says that Abram worshipped many gods. So it's very likely that Abraham came from this polytheistic background. But it's here in Genesis 12 that we see the Christmas story predicted in Genesis 3 start to take shape. Because what God had promised and prophesied in Genesis 3 was now starting to be delivered through a person. You see, it was just this nebulous idea of, I'm going to send a Savior, we saw in Genesis 3. But now that nebulous idea is starting to take more and more shape here in Genesis 12, where we actually see the person, the lineage, the descendants through which God's promise would come to pass. So a few points if you're a note taker, write these down. Number one, we see the calling of Abraham. The calling of Abram. I need to stop saying those names wrong. His name doesn't become Abraham until later in Genesis. So it's Abram at this point. But look at verse one again. It says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So right here, we're introduced to this guy. God's calling Abram Abram into his story. But there's a few things I want us to, to note from this one verse. First off, this is one of the first times in the scriptures, one of the main times in the scriptures, that we see a covenant relationship with God introduced. God had made a covenant with Adam in the garden. God had made a covenant with Noah through the rainbow. And now we see a covenant with Abram made here in Genesis chapter 12. What's a covenant if you're not familiar with that? A covenant is where God sovereignly sets this agenda or this plan. And then God invites human beings to act in obedience to that plan. So think of it this way. It'd be like God saying, simplest way we could phrase it. God says, I'm going to do this in the world because I'm the sovereign God of the universe. I set the agenda. I set the standard. I make the plans. I'm going to do this. Can you mess up God's sovereign plan? No. But he chooses to sovereignly invite us into the plan. So God says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to accomplish this for my glory. And if you want to, I'm inviting you into the plan with me. You can choose to act in obedience to what I'm going to do, and you can be part of the story. And that's what God's doing here with Abram. He's inviting him into the sovereign plan that he's writing. Here's a little side note. This is free for you this morning as well. From Genesis to Revelation, every time God sets up a covenant, mankind never comes through on their end of the bargain. That's why we need Jesus. See, God sets the standard, invites us into this covenant relationship, but we always screw it up. So God says, here's what I'm going to do instead. I'll set the covenant, and then I'll keep your side of the covenant too through Jesus on the cross. And you get all the credit for it. That's good news. That's Christmas. That's God keeping our end of the covenant. We needed God to do that. So here in Genesis 12.1, we see a covenant relationship established. Second time. This is crazy. I didn't know this until this week. I was sharing this with Pastor Joe. This here in Genesis 12 is not the first time God invited Abraham 
into obedience into this covenant relationship. This was not the first time that God had called Abram to leave his family and head toward Canaan. I never knew that before. Turn to me with, to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, if you want to turn there real quick. In Acts chapter 6, we're introduced, and this is just a little uh, extra for you this morning to help us understand the Scriptures. We're introduced to a, a gentleman named Stephen in Acts chapter 6. Stephen was one of the first deacons in the early church. A deacon, if you don't know, is somebody who assisted the pastors in serving the people. So because the apostles had gotten so busy with the work of the early church, they recruited these other men, and the word deacon literally means table servant, they were men that were recruited in order to serve the people in the congregations that they had established. So in Acts chapter 6, verse 9, we see that Stephen, this first deacon, he was also a powerful preacher of the gospel, a powerful evangelist. It says that members of the Jewish synagogue had rose up against Stephen, and they had falsely accused him of blaspheming God. So Stephen is then taken before the high priest, and here's what's crazy. Rather than defend himself, the Bible says that Stephen instead preached the gospel. He took an opportunity in front of all of these Jewish leaders to preach the gospel, but he doesn't just do it in just some kind of namby-pamby way. Stephen actually walks this whole crowd of people through God's entire redemptive history, starting with Abram. Why does he do that? Because he's speaking to Jews, and he wants them to see that what we believe of the gospel originated with the Jewish people. So look at Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Says the high priest said, Are these things true? So Stephen replies, Brothers and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, that's Abram, when he was still in Mesopotamia, before he settled in Haran. And he said to him, He said to Abram, Leave your country and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans, that was Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans was what it was referred to, and he settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God then had him move to this land which you are now living. So notice what Stephen says here. When Abram was still back in Mesopotamia, before he had arrived in Haran, we're going to look at that in just a second, God had invited him into this covenant relationship with him. So this event that Stephen is talking about here in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7 actually occurred in Genesis 11, before Genesis 12 that we had read this morning. So in Genesis 11, we see that Abram and his father lay left the land of Ur, following the call of God, headed towards where? The land of Canaan. And on their way there, they ended up settling in Haran. Hey, a couple things to note about that. If God's calling was the same in Genesis 11 that it was in Genesis 12, we see with Abram that he only went part of the way that God told him to go. He didn't complete the whole journey, so he was disobedient. Also, God told him, according to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, to leave everything behind, including his relatives. Did, did Abram do that? No. He took his father and his family with him to Haran. That's where they resettled. Abraham was disobedient to the call of God. But then Stephen reminds us here in Acts chapter 7 that after his father died, then Abram finally moved on God's call again. Genesis eleven thirty two 32 says his father passed away. So go back to Genesis 12 in your Bible. Turn back there with me. Genesis 11.31 says that Abraham settled in Haran. His father died in verse 32. So Genesis 12.1, God comes to him again. And he says, Abram, go out from your father's land to the land that I will show you. We don't know whether it was cultural or personal, but Abram wasn't willing to leave his dad. 
We don't know why he wouldn't, but he stayed in Haran for several years until his father passed away. And even in Genesis 12, and I have to be so careful here. I've heard this taught so many times. Abram, this great father of the faith. That's true. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says that. That's absolutely true. He is revered by the Jewish people globally. Abraham's a bad dude. But you even see in Genesis 12, he was disobedient. Look at this in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. God told him, you've got to leave your father's land. You've got to leave your relatives in your father's house. Why was that so important to God? Because God was taking this nobody from a polytheistic pagan background and starting a new nation. God was starting a people for himself. A people that he would call his own. So he needed Abraham to cut all family ties, to cut all land ties, and to cut all religious ties. And he needed him to start over. Sounds an awful lot like the call of Jesus, doesn't it? Leave your father and your mother. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus reminds us you may be at war with your parents and your siblings and your relatives if you choose to follow me. The calling never changed. It's still the same. And God needed Abraham to leave that all behind. Everything that would bind him to his past life, God says, leave it there and follow me. But does he do it in Genesis 12? No. Go, go look down at, at verse 4. He, he ends up leaving, we see. So Abram went as the Lord had commanded him. But, but who does it say he took with him? Lot, his nephew. That's a relative. Not only that, but you continue reading down in verse 5 that he, he took his wife, Sarah, which was probably important. I don't think God would be like, yeah, you should probably leave her behind. Don't do that, man. Take your wife with you. But then he took his nephew Lot, verse 5, and then what else did he take? All of his possessions that he had accumulated and all the people that he had acquired. Everything from his father's house, Abram brought with him. Why is that important that we note that this morning? Because even in that little act right there, that act of disobedience, friends, we see the need for Christmas still. You see, God knew sovereignly that Abraham wasn't going to be able to fulfill his end of the bargain. We see that God calls, Abraham screws it up one verse later. But at the end of the calling, God promises, I'm going to send a Savior that's going to fix your mistakes. We need Christmas Day. Why? Because the natural inclination of my heart and your heart is toward disobedience to God. Was Abraham a great man of the faith? Absolutely. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says that. But don't miss this. He was also a man just like you and me who desperately needed a Savior. And we see that in verses 4, 5, and 6. Look at the second point here, starting verse 2, the promise that God makes him. The promise. So we saw the calling. Look at the promise. God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. Your name's going to be great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse anybody that treats you with contempt. Really, the promises that God gives this man can be summed up in, in three, three words. Nation, name, and Savior. Those are the three promises that God gives him. Now, there's a lot that we could unpack here as it associates with Israel and so much. We don't have time for all that, so we're going to move quickly. First, notice God promises to make him a great nation. If you're familiar with biblical history, world history in general, and I said this a moment ago, Abram is the father of the nation of Israel. Israel is a protected nation by God. We know these things. This is important stuff. But it all started with Abram. I got to thinking this week, as God makes him that promise in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. Can you imagine what's going through this guy's head when God makes that promise? God, you just told me to leave everything behind. You're asking me to press reset. Two times God asked him to do it. 
God, you want me to leave my father's house? You want me to leave everything behind? Listen, that's not a great way to start a nation. You need people and things most of the time. And God says, you leave it all behind. I have to imagine myself, and maybe I'm taking liberties here. I I think the reason maybe that Abraham kept bringing his relatives and his servants and his stuff with him is he wanted to believe the promise of God, but the promise of God did not add up in his situation. Have you thought about that? I'm going to make you a great nation, but before I do that, leave it all behind, but I promise I'll do it. And you have to imagine Abram stepping back going, God, how in the world is that going to work? I read this past week, I thought this was, was helpful for me, that faith, true faith, faith that the Christian is called to live in is fueled by trusting the promises of God even when they don't make sense in the situation. And we see that here. The promises of God do not make sense in this situation that Abraham is in, but he had to trust what God was calling him to do. Last night I was, I was reading, and I don't mean to take a side note here, I was reading through my, my prayer journal, and I was just thinking of that idea, faith is fueled by trusting the promises of God, even if they don't make sense in the situation. I was thinking of the journey that even as a church, God called us back in August to do with, with our Finding Hope Center over there. If you go over there right now, it is literally jam-packed full of stuff that's ready to be given away to people. It's crazy. And I remember back in, Joe and I started talking about this several months ago, but back in July when we really started talking about this, me and him, and we'd stand in this room, and we, we knew the guy behind us was getting ready to get evicted, so we should have felt bad, but we didn't feel too bad. And we just started like dreaming, and Joe and I were like, oh, we could do this, and we could do this, and we could do this, and man, we're dreamers, and we love to do that kind of stuff. But it, we just, I just wasn't sure. Like, that's a big risk for a small church to take. That's a big financial risk. That's a big people risk. There's a lot of risk associated with that. And then I was reading in my, my prayer journal. Let's see if I can find it here. I was reading in my prayer journal. You can verify this later if you want to see this. But I was reading in Revelation chapter 3 when, when Jesus was talking to the church in Philadelphia. And to the church in Philadelphia, he tells them, um, you, have little, you have little power, but you've been faithful. Therefore, I set an open door before you. I was reading my pastor from Cincinnati, his devotional book. He had written on that. An open door of opportunity because although you had little power, you still had remained faithful to what I've called you to do. Therefore, I have set a door of opportunity before you. And I knew in that moment that Jesus wanted us to do this and he had promised it to us. I knew from his word that that was a promise that he had made to us. And it didn't make sense in in the moment, did it? Some of you were in here in that family meeting when Joe and I were like, hey guys, we got to come up with $25,000 in 30 days. Do you know how, I've told, I told the church I spoke at uh, two weeks ago, that sounds like really cool when you're thinking about, all right, like 10 years from now, we're going to write a book called Living Room to Living Hope, like the story of Living Hope Columbus. You'll never forget the evening we met on a Sunday night and pitched this big idea. And man, we had the greatest faith in the world. I'm going to be honest with you. That night, I tried to put on a good show. Then I got in my car and I was scared to death. Because if you remember one thing that we believe that God wanted us to do is if we didn't collect the money, we had to give it back, what we did collect. That's humiliating. We believed the promises of God even if they didn't make sense in the situation. And look what Jesus did through that. Look what he's doing through our church. Faith is fueled by trusting the promises of God when they don't make sense in the situation. Why can we do that? Because God's a promise keeper. Genesis 12 is all about the promise of a Savior and that God always keeps his word. Hey, look at this second thing here. 
If God was going to turn Abram into a great nation, not only would he have to trust the promise, but he'd also have to trust in the miraculous and impossible. Here's why. His wife was barren. We read that in Genesis chapter 11. While Abram's brother were having children, his wife could not. And on top of that, they were old. Check out Genesis 11 verse 30. Sarai, his wife, was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. Talking about his other relatives that did. So not only was she barren, but they're also getting up there in age. And I can just imagine as God is promising this to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham's going, I'm old. She can't. What do we do here? I'm not a biology guy, but I, I just don't think that's going to work. But God repeats it in Genesis 13, the next chapter. What's he say? Hey, Abram, Genesis 13, 16. I'm going to make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So if anybody could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Then you fast forward two chapters, Genesis 15, 5. God takes Abram outside. He says, look at the sky, count the stars. If you can, you ever tried that before? He says, Abram, your offspring are going to be that numerous. God made the promise in Genesis 11 and Genesis 12, but the Bible says it wasn't until Genesis 5, 15, verse 6, that Abraham finally believed the promise of God. He finally believed what God said. He had so questioned it up to this point, but the Bible says in Genesis 15, verse 6, that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He finally believed the promise of God. Now, think about this. This is wild to me. From the initial promise that God made, you see in Genesis 16, verse 3, that 10 years passes and the promise still hasn't been realized. Think of your life just for a moment. I did this last night. Think about what has all occurred in your life in just 10 years. 10 years. In my life, I met my girlfriend who became my fiance, who then I married, two children, four jobs, five houses, three major moves. You're thinking, dude, you need to chill out. That's a lot. <laughs> in 10 years. A lot has happened in 10 years in my life. And I'm sure you could say the very same thing. It's been busy. Would you be willing to cling to a promise that God made over 10 years? I can't even remember some of that stuff that far back. But then think about this. You fast forward from Genesis 16 to Genesis 17. The Bible says another 15 years passed. And the child has still not been born. Think of your life over the past 20, 24, 25 years. I'm sorry, no, 14 years. 24 years. How much life has gone by for you in 24? Some of y'all weren't even alive 24 years ago. Your entire life is the existence that Abraham had to wait. My life 24 years ago, I was trying to figure out what the best BMX bike to get was and what kind of hot pocket I should eat. That seems like an eternity ago. Could you cling to the promise of God that long? Because it wasn't until Genesis 21, 25 years after God made Abram the promise that he would turn him into a great nation, that his descendants would be a blessing at 100 years old. Can you imagine? I'm 33 with two kids, and I'm like, I don't want any more. Can you imagine doing it at 100? And what does God do? He defies the odds, he tears down the impossible, and he comes through on a promise. Friends, God's a promise keeper, but God doesn't always work on our timetables. 
Let's remember that this morning. We see that here in Genesis chapter 12. Because as you continue to read from Genesis 12 to Genesis 21, and even thereafter, we know in Genesis 15 verse 6, that it says Abraham believed the promise of God. But a few verses later, watch this. He, he says he believed it and it was credited to him for righteousness. And then just a, a few verses later, he's like, well, but actually, I still don't have a kid yet. So I think I'm going to sleep with my servant lady and have a kid with her rather than, than my wife, Sarah. This great, Bob calls him a great man of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, revered by three major world religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Yet what do we see here? That even Abraham still struggled to believe God. He still struggled to walk in obedience to God. I'm reminded on this side of the cross of 2 Timothy 2.13, where Paul wrote that when we're faithless, that Jesus is still faithful. That while I may delay God's promise, I can't derail God's promise. That's what we see here in Genesis 13 here. Where my faith falls short, grace fills in the gaps. Jesus fills in the gaps. But what separates us from every other faith system, friends, is verse number three. And this is where we'll close today. Look at that promise that he made. God says, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, Abram. Eventually, through this descendant that you're going to have, it took 25 years for you to even see the child of the promise in your life. Eventually, Christmas will come. Eventually, the earth will be blessed through one of your descendants. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that this is the gospel preached to Abraham. That the gospel we preach was preached to Abraham here in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. How is that so? Because just like Abraham, you and I have the opportunity to believe God, trust God, and put our faith in God, just like Abraham was invited to do as well. Abram, what was he doing? He was looking toward a Savior that was going to come for him. What do we do? We look back at a Savior that came for us. Both of us on both sides are trusting in the promise of God. You read in Matthew chapter 1, it'll be on the screen, that God was true to his word. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1. Matthew writes the account and genealogy of Jesus. Here's the descendants of Christ, son of David. We're going to talk about that next week. Then what does he say? Son of Abraham. That Jesus ultimately, through the lineage of Abraham, Jesus was ultimately born into this world. That like Abraham, we have a chance to be blessed. We have a, a chance to put our faith in a Savior that has come. Every Christmas, that's what we do. Think of it this way, and I'll be done here. I like timelines. I like to see things linearly, and this is helpful for me. I want you to think of this podium right here as the birth of Jesus. This is Christmas right here. I should, Joe, we should have had a manger. That would have been so nice. But this is Christmas. Abraham lived on this side of Christmas. And through the promises and prophecies of God, what did he do? He was always looking forward to Christmas. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. God made a promise. I'm going to believe it. Sometimes I'm going to stumble and fall, but I'm going to believe in the promise that he made that a Savior will come into this world, that will redeem all mankind from their sin problem. If we trust him and put our faith in him, Christmas is coming. But then here's Christmas. Where do we live? We live on this side of Christmas. What do we do? God made a promise and he came through. Christmas has already happened. And we look back on a savior that was promised and God came through to his word. Therefore, I can trust him this side of the promise because he kept his promise that side of it. 
And what do we do? We put our faith in the Savior who already came. We believe what Jesus did for us. and We trust Him for our salvation. Do you see, friends? The plan has always been the same. It never changed. God's a promise keeper on both sides of the manger for us today. So who's Jesus? He's the promised Savior who came. The promised Savior who died and was buried and resurrected for our sake. The promised and prophetic Savior of Genesis 3.15 that is now we're seeing actually manifested in Genesis 12 verse 3 that invites us into a relationship with Him this Christmas season. Restoring our relationship with God. It's Jesus. Christmas is not confined to the Gospels. Christmas is throughout the whole Bible. Why? Because that's always been the plan. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thanks for your word this morning. God, I pray that your word has encouraged. I pray that it has equipped. And I pray that it mobilizes your church towards mission this week. God, would you give us renewed and fresh vision into your word as we study it personally? God, may you help us see Jesus in every passage, in every letter, in every chapter, in every book. Because Jesus has always been the plan. God, your grace is speckled throughout the scriptures because Jesus has always been the plan. God, thanks for inviting us into your story. May you find us faithful and obedient to your call this week. We love you, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray these things. Amen.